This is a recording from the Sunday, December 6, 2015 meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca. And today we have uh, John Ince, which this is a very interesting title, The Political Significance of Sexuality. Um, John's in, he'll explain how he got into that. Uh, my name is John Ince, and um, I'll tell you a little bit of what brought me here today, the sort of strange story that started uh, 35 years ago. And I was a lawyer, a young lawyer. I just started to practice law in Vancouver and had done some um, press-worthy cases. So my, my name was in the news a fair amount. Um, and a man walked into my office and said, um, the government is opening my mail. And I was deeply uh, suspicious of him, and because I would get people walking into my office saying the CIA has planted a chip in my brain. And, um, but I asked him, well, how do you know this? And he produced a, a, a letter on the letterhead of the Canada Customs Service saying, we're opening your mail. <laughs> And I asked him what he thought they were seizing, and he said, uh, it's probably my sex magazines. And he was um, getting sent from a friend in Switzerland a sexually explicit magazine. And at the time, this was considered by the Canadian government anything that showed explicit sex. So we're talking hard penis, penetration, ejaculation, that was on a list um, with uh, handguns and nuclear weapons as absolutely prohibited from entering Canada. And when I saw this letter, it actually is one of those moments in your life when it changes. And that was the very first um, step on this long journey. And I became, I was outraged that they would do this and I couldn't understand the reason. What is the problem this person is, is bringing in a magazine and, and he, he told me he uses it for fantasy enhancement to masturbate with. And I said, you know, is there any children? Is there any violence? No, it's just consenting adults. And I went, what could be the social interest in considering this like handguns and nuclear bombs, that they were on the same category, absolutely prohibited from um, use in Canada, even privately. And I knew I was up against something when I went to the lawyer in representing the Canadian government and said, I'd like to see a copy of the magazine. I'm the lawyer of this fellow. And I agreed to take the case for free. Um, because that's basically what I got into law for, was to uh, sort of have fun in life. And um, doing regular laws is hideously boring. And um, But doing cases like this was really interesting, even if you didn't make any money from it. Um, and uh, he said, well, I can't let you see that. Uh, you're going to need a court order. Again, like, you're kidding me. I've never in my brief legal career had to get a court order to see some evidence and it was like this attitude that it was some sort of toxic chemical that 
could contaminate anyone who saw it, except for, of course, the customs agents and him. And uh, we ended up, uh, and the Canadian Constitution um, um, had, uh, while this was going on, a year elapsed, and the Canadian Constitution came into force in July of 1982. And this was like a revolutionary development for the legal field to have a, a constitution. And being humanists, you'd, you'd be, and as I am, and this was a big step to finally have something that stood above parliament. Because prior to the constitution, as you probably know, parliament was absolutely um, the last resort. And whatever they passed, they passed. And there was remnants of a constitution, the British North America Act, and some constitutional law, but nothing like the revolution of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So uh, because this incident had happened before the Charter, um, we, we decided to do something strategic, which was go down to Blaine, where this was completely legal, and buy a magazine and bring it back. And we... We brought it. We drove in through the uh, customs, you know, the inspection place. Have you got anything to declare? And we hold up. Oh no, no, no! You can't. You can't bring that in. Uh, they'll give you a refund. And we said, no, no, no! We insist. We want to bring it in. She said, we'll have to seize it. And we said, yes, you'll have to seize it. And that started a case that um, we sued the government for seizing it. And we had a five-day trial in Vancouver, which. Um, then I discovered the media power of sex. So here we had a little guy fighting the government, and um, and he was courageous enough to take the stand and say, yes, I, I buy this material to masturbate with it, like millions of other men who do that but don't want to admit it, and certainly publicly. And we had, uh, we had professors who said, you know, this is normal sexual depictions, and there's nothing unusual in it. And again, it was just one man, one woman, a scene of, of the two meeting on an airplane and getting it on and saying goodbye. And, um, and uh, the, the Crown uh, produced no evidence and said it's obscene on its face. We don't need any evidence. And uh, when I asked the Crown lawyer, well, what is your case? He said to me, very revealing, a crusty old judge. That was his case. <laughs> and he was dead on. And this crusty old judge uh, uh, ruled against us and outraged me. Um, and it's one of the few times I've really, really been angry in my life. That, that, that it was it. And we appealed it. And basically, the appellate courts agreed with us in the end and, and struck down the law. And this was pretty dramatic for a young lawyer to have one of the first laws under the Canadian Charter struck down. And it was a great day of celebration in um, uh, my life. But it was, it was struck down not sort of on the merits of the case. It was the law was struck down because it was so vague. It said anything immoral or indecent couldn't come into the country. And it was actually the second law of the Dominion of Canada, and it was passed in December 1867. And um, there's, um, and so the court said, look, you cannot regulate free press 
with such a vague law that could mean anything that a customs border guard wants it to mean and even what a judge wants it to mean. We need explicit um, prohibitions if you want to prohibit. So it never really dealt with, well, what should be prohibited? But the law was struck down, and for a time there was no law. And then the conservative government of the day passed a new law which minorly improved the specificity of the law, but was still very vague. And um, uh, but other developments, uh, other developments were happening, and the, the long and short of it was that this triggered a fascination in me. Why is, is the government so frightened of sex? Why is it that a picture of a nude is okay, or was okay, but a picture of people actually having sex crossed the line? Like, to me, I couldn't see any harm basis of the, the two. But somebody could. And I got really, really interested in that. So I, um, I started becoming a serious <coughs> student of why sex is the target of attacks. And um, I started to see this frequently in other areas of life, not just the law, that even on the CBC, and even today, and in the Vancouver Sun, even today, an issue which I've raised with both of them, and again, it's just like I'm talking another language, they actually censor. So here we have the media censoring themselves. So when a guest says, fuck, the Vancouver Sun still doesn't print the word fuck. And they'll have a whole story on when the word fuck is part of the word, the story, like when there were some children expelled for using that term, and they go F, star, star, star. And I write them and say, this is a violation of basic journalistic principles of censoring. You're legitimizing censorship when you were overtly employing it in your media. And they just come back with baffle gab that, oh, it would bother people. And, you know, well, wait a minute. Many of your articles would bother people. You don't prohibit your articles because it might bother people. So there's, again, this, and in schools, I, we, we have this curious sex education system where the education is largely aimed at preventing disease and, and talking about how the mechanics of sex work, but no real discussion of the pleasure aspect. No, you know, nothing around, well, how would I pleasure myself in a, uh, that's like crossing the line. You're going to get into trouble in the school boards if you start talking about, like, say, a teacher talking about a clitoris for, and, and different ways of pleasuring a clitoris, or boys' different way of masturbating. Um, there are some very rare program, like the Unitarian Church has something called Our Whole Life, OWL, the acronym. And they explore these, but these are like rare programs and really on the edge. So why is there no like pleasure, sexual pleasure education in schools? We have art education, the pleasure of the eye or 
music, but why is there nothing? And so it was like, it's, and when I started to get into this, I go, where are the, is the, are the books on this subject? Where is the scholarship exploring these, the same issues that I'm, can, you know, noticing? There wasn't much. There was shockingly little. There was like a huge burgeoning literature, for example, in the 80s coming out on gay homosexuality and a whole culture of gay like education in the universities with gay teaching programs on gay uh, studies and homosexual studies. But where was there any, that was like a, mainly focused on gender, not about the pleasure aspects of being gay. So again, where is pleasure and lust and sexuality being studied? And it wasn't, which was sh shocking to me. And so to, to uh, make a long story short, I discovered the existence in a few academic articles of something called erotophobia. And that is the fear of sexuality. And it had just been identified as something that could be measured, uh, which is what psychologists like to do. They get constructs of depression or anger or gay identity and chart how we can measure it. But it struck me that this was what was at play here, is a deep, irrational fear of sexuality. I saw it as on par with racism, very, very similar reaction. So a black person comes into a room of racists and there's an immediate visceral reaction. Or a woman in a room of, of uh, male, male, women-hating males, um, uh, a Muslim into a room of Muslim-hating people. There's, it's the same thing which would go on when you show the picture of, of sex to people who are uptight about sex. They have the, the instant negative reaction. So it's exactly like any other prejudice. Only I started to see, I think it's the universal prejudice. It's in every culture. It's, it's not just in the culture of white dominant males. It's, it's, it's in underling cultures, in repressed cultures, as well as dominant cultures. It's in all ethnic cultures. And it's also very, very interesting because it's a prejudice about a part of ourselves. So when we react to a picture of sex, we're reacting to something that we have ourselves. We're sexual beings. When we react to another, a woman if we're a man, or a man if we're a woman, or a black if we're a white, we're reacting to other. But the prohibition on, or the fear of sexuality is not only a fear of the sexuality of others, it's a fear of the sexuality of our own. And this has enormous political significance which is where I'm going to tie in the subject of this talk. So, um, just a little more, I, I re when I started to look at and discover the existence of erotophobia, I started to wonder, am I erotophobic? 
And the answer was yes. Um, uh, how could I possibly escape erotophobia when it is so part of the culture? And I started reflecting on my own history. Like my mother had, you know, when I was 14, she never, or my father, <coughs> they never talked about sex. And my mother gave me some books that were very like plumbing, the plumbing of sex. And uh, nobody ever said, hey, you know, you're, you're getting into an age where you're going to be getting erections and getting horny, and this is a wonderful phase of life, and here are ways to explore it. So instead, like millions, and still today, like not millions, hundreds of millions, no, not hundreds of millions, billions of boys, they will come of age and they will, through one way or another, it's changing a little, well, a lot today because of the internet, they will start masturbating, as I did. But I didn't feel 100% good about it. I, I'm doing something that no one really talks about, or, and we rib each other with my boyfriends, but it wasn't like an open discussion in my family uh, the way almost every other thing was. like you know, nuclear weapons could kill us all. Yikes, or dad's having some financial difficulties. Yikes, but this this now emerging, very important part of my life, like masturbating every day, is definitely yes and no. It's, it's tremendously pleasurable, but it's stigmatized in my own mind. Am I doing something okay? Am I... Am I doing it too much? Am I like something wrong with me? There is no baseline of, of normalcy. And millions, billions of men are developing their sexuality with this sort of ambivalence. And it cues in a subtle negativity around pleasure, especially erotic pleasure, because it's often like get off and get it over with as fast as I can. Because if I'm discovered in the middle of the act, I'll have to jump off the bridge. So get it over with. So women want to know why a lot, lot of men, most men are maybe lousy lovers. It's our training. Fast. Get, get on. Get it over with fast. And, and when I start, first started making love with women, I was like five years into that process when one woman said, you know, I'm not really getting off having sex with you. And I was like, oh, nice and hard and lasting long as you. But actually, my vagina and penetration isn't like really where it's at for me. It's, it's my clitoris. I was 21. What's a clitoris? No girl had ever told me. So she, like the women, I would, they weren't empowered to be saying, hey, guy. Let's have a conversation about our sexuality. It was all like shut down. So on all of these levels in my personal life, in schools, in religions, in governments, I'm seeing this massive trend of negativity towards sexuality. But that isn't being discussed. Erotophobia is like not being discussed. So I said, okay, I'm going to write a book on it. And I spent off and on 20 years from, from the early 80s 
till the early aughts. I, I spent researching this book because I was pretty much on my own. I traveled the world, I interviewed professors, I did uh, various experiential things on my own, which I may or may not get into. Uh, by then, well, I will. By then, I realized I just didn't want to study sexuality. I wanted to get involved politically and in the community. So I set up a store called The Art of Loving, which um, I've operated with my partner Vera for the last uh, 13 years. It's now near Broadway and Canby. Um, and we give sex education classes and we sell sexual products and, and we've done various out there um, sex art projects that have attracted the attention of the police, which I probably don't have time to, but we've basically done some um, public therapy with the police where they panicked. <laughs> they had a sexual panic and we held their hand through it and they got over it. Um, not until the story went international right around the world. I don't know if any of you remember our, our, our show at the Art of Loving in 2003 called Public Sex, Art and Democracy, which is right in line with tonight's, uh, this morning's talk, where very quickly, uh, because it is relevant and, and, um, we, we, we display erotic art from artists, uh, and artists are hungry because again, and we discovered, by the way, first of all, that erotic art is a non-seller. And because people would say, well, that's a beautiful painting, uh, but my children wouldn't allow me to have it. And if they did, my mother wouldn't. So we discovered there were, again, this, like, you can have anything else depicted in your front room, but an erotic act is totally taboo. But there's a wonderful artist who teaches it, Emily Carr, and raised a generation of students. His name is Martin Goderna, and he did a fascinating um, series on oral sex, very abstract, and he loves to do a presentation before his opening. We did an opening for him at the store, and he and I cooked up uh, what he says, and he's a, a student of the history of erotic art, is the first time in erotic art where a couple actually did 69, and in front of an audience, because we wanted to verify it as, as a real act, and um, Martin painted their bodies as they were in the 69 position having sex, and then draped a canvas over them. So a three-dimensional act became a two-dimensional act, and he gave a whole presentation to the audience. And when the when we were doing this, and we put out to our mailing list, we were doing it. A Globe and Mail reporter heard about this and went, "Oh, this is interesting," and uh, contacted me and said, "Yeah, we're going to do it." And then she said, "What about the law?" And I said, "Well, you know, I'm a lawyer. I specialize in sexual law. I don't think there's a problem." And they interviewed, <clears throat> this is political, they, they, they phoned Kashid. that name mean, do anything for you? Yeah. Yeah, liberal guy, and he was the second in command at the Vancouver, and he got all tight and said, made a statement through the press person saying, we're going to bust them if they do this. Now, this is unprecedented. The police threatening to, to do something in an art gallery called the Art of Loving, if we do it, well, that was what the media needed. Now we got a bust. And 
So the night of the show, we had three satellite trucks outside our, and all the press thought I was doing this as a publicity stunt to promote, you know, and I was all upset. What do you mean? I've been doing uh, activism and sex for 20 years. And, 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 but they were also interested, could he get it up? The performer with, you know, he's about to be busted and me too. And it was a very dramatic event and just a little gossipy stuff when it, when it was over. Um, Vancouver, in, in a way, is such a small place. Um, uh, somebody came up to me and said, you know, the Vancouver police were here tonight. Well, and we said, no, you know, no way. They never showed. But they said they would. Oh, no, they were undercover. And I said, well, how would you know? And she said, my neighbor's an undercover cop, and he was here. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and we did a freedom of information and to find out what happened. And they went back, and they went to the Crown and said, we got to bust them. And the Crown were people I went to law school with, and they went like, wait a minute, we're going to bust these guys for doing something in, in a closed shop that clearly everyone had, had know what they were doing, and there's an artist professor? No. No, we're not going to take this on, sorry. And they were very embarrassed. And we actually did a, a police complaints bureau against them for threatening us, and that was interesting. Fast forward two years later, I set up a political party with another group of people called the Sex Party in BC. And we ran in two elections, and because sex wasn't on the agenda, um, and uh, uh, we, as a fundraiser, we did had another art professor do another sexually explicit project, but very artistic. And the media phoned the police and said, are you going to go after these guys? And the Vancouver police said, nope. So that's what I mean. We did therapy with them, and they had their panic attack, and then they got over it, and Kashid would go on to a political career in the BC government, and then there was some scandal, I forget what it was, and he got demoted. But anyway, I see the time is running here. So um, we got erotophobia, and erotophobia is in all of us, but it varies. It's, a, it's just like some of us can be very, very mild racists and others can be really uh, pronounced racists. It's the same with erotophobia. It runs on a continuum. And, and so I got really curious, like, what are the factors which would make a high level of erotophobia and what would make a junior level of erotophobia? And... I started to see an amazing correlation, that the ultimate explanation was political. So this ties in with the subject of political significance of sexuality. So where in the world is the most erotophobic place? So it's, it's a toss-up between Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan. So in Saudi Arabia, like the website of my store, The Art of Loving, is blocked. You can't see this wholesome, educationally oriented in Saudi Arabia. You can see lots of uh, things on jihadi and how to kill Jews, but you wouldn't be able to see my store. And nor could you have any uh, homosexual rights in Saudi Arabia. It's a punishable by death. Nor is there any erotic entertainment or sex education, anything like that. It's deeply, deeply frightened of sexuality. And it's the most hierarchical authoritarian place in the world. There's no elections. It's a kingdom. 
Um, Non-elected people have huge power in the in the um, in the government and in religion. Women, as as we know, have almost no rights. They can't drive in most places, and so we see this pattern of deep um, um, uh, national authoritarianism and high high fear of sex. Now let's compare its opposite. Where is the most probably democratic place in the world? Huh? Denmark. Denmark, exactly, Denmark. And in Denmark, you know, there are advanced sex education, the most advanced sex education in the world. There's very, very few restrictions on sexual media, sexual entertainment. Um, and uh, a homosexuality is completely legal. There's legalized marriage. And uh, there's an interesting correlation. Democracy and sexual comfort on one side, authoritarianism and sexual fear on the other. Now let's switch from the national grounds to the church. The Catholic Church, very, very hierarchical. And it has, I won't list all of its well-known sexual prohibitions. Well, just a few, you know. Again, masturbation is still considered. It's the dogma of the church. Quote, a seriously disordered act. Quote, they're against premarital sex and homosexuality, and, and, and we know all the rest. Compare, And it's very, very authoritarian. Top down, only the cardinals decide who's the big cheese, and then it's all appointed. There's nothing like like the parishioners have a choice over who might be their priest and so on. I've just watched the movie um, Spotlight. I don't know if any of you have seen that. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of the Boston Globe's attack on um, the Catholic Church in Boston and how they were up against not just the church but a whole society of, of Catholic supporters. And, um, and so you compare, there you see again, authoritarianism, sex, sexual fear. And on the other side, probably the most democratic sort of church is the Unitarian Church in, in Canada and the United States. And, and they are the first to ordain women and gays. And um, they have, as I mentioned earlier, the most advanced sex education course probably in the world our whole life. And so there's churches. Then you look at like corporations or like military institutions, which are very, very hierarchically run. And there, there are lots of sexual prohibitions even today. You can't sell sexual media on bases that it's still an offense to have adultery in the armies. This was a case even in the Canadian army. There, um, um, and of course, uh, armed forces up until recently have been legendarily anti-gay. And you compare that with like uh, an art colony. I lived for a decade in the Gulf Islands, and you know they're very sort of artistically oriented and a way more permissive attitude towards sexualities. And and very the, the way they parent their kids and and gender relations are very equal. And so you see these patterns over and over again that authoritarian political culture in, and finally in families. If you look at like traditional families that immigrate to Canada today, um, where the father is dominant, the kids are to be obedient, the wife, you'll see again negative sexual attitudes. You'll see very little discussions in that family about sexuality. And <coughs> 
Um, and he gay? If the kid is gay, he's in big trouble in one of those families. And you often see the the authoritarian families showing up today in the sex education controversy that happened in Ontario, right? When Premier Wynne, who's gay, wanted to put a fairly modest sex ed new sex education program, and there, there was like thousands. I think at one point tens of thousands of people taking their kids out of schools in protest. Um, the biggest sexual protest in Canada in, in my life. And if you look at the pictures, they're almost all um, ethnic. They're from other parts of the, the, the world that are anti-gay, anti-sex, anti-masturbation. And, um, uh, and, and yet you compare that with the, the yuppie family to, you know, to equal wage earners of man and woman, and they're educating their kids in a, a much more sex-positive way. So why? Why does this exist? Why is authoritarianism correlated with sexual fear? And um, why is democracy correlated with sexual ease? And that's actually a really, really complex question. And what is staggering to me is this is the only book that has ever been written on that subject. So this major, major psychosocial significance has been virtually ignored. And one of the reasons is because there's a huge amount of erotophobia in, in, the, uh, in academia. It's not, it's changing now. There are a lot of good things happening recent, very recently, but generally it hasn't been a good career path to study sexuality in universities. And so subjects like what I'm talking about are just, and it is very interesting when the, the American publisher of this book, which is um, uh, a big publisher called Prometheus Books, they said, we're worried about this book because it falls right between, it, it falls in a, a crevice that are, we've published other books on, on, on sex and we find that anything that makes people think about sex doesn't sell very well. And, uh, you know, if it's about doing it, like how to, how to do oral sex, that's different. But actually to think about it, and I talk about this in the book, that a phobia undermines the ability to think. That's why, like, racists never wrote books on racism, and their, their analysis of their own attitudes is very, very primitive. Because if you fear something, that's a really strong incentive to sort of ignore it or, or not look at it clearly. So it's a very, very complex subject that I've raised, and that's why it took me so long to write, because I got, okay, what is the, why is this? And I'll just, I can only just sample, give you just a sample of reasons, but I originally thought that sex, sexual fear was invented by authoritarian elites. So an obvious, you're, you're a pope, and you're thinking, how can we generate business for ourselves? You know, we've got a pretty well-behaved population out there, and there's a little thievery going on, and some murder here and there, but, geez, that's not many people. You know, when they, how are we going to get people into the confession box? I've got an idea. 
let's make everything they do around sex a sin. So if they want to think about it, if they have lust for somebody in their eyes, Jesus said that's like committing adultery, just to look on somebody with lust. Or if heavens to, you know, forbid they masturbate, or even worse, they have an affair. Well, we have just tons of material to work with here. So let's prohibit that. And of course, and it's true that it's, and Foucault and others saw this piece. You know, it's just a piece of the puzzle. That but you can deploy sexuality to make people obedient or to intervene into their lives. And um, and I was on that. And my book was called The Sexual Dictatorship for like two years. It's amazing how long I can deceive my own self because but then fortunately my critical faculty well, really? Popes had that sort of what about my my study that says if you're frightened of something, you don't really study it carefully, and you wouldn't you wouldn't be thinking so rationally of how to deploy sex to get into people's lives and make them good parishioners and be relieved after the confession, which is what you want for them to get relieved so they'll come back the next time after they masturbate and get relief, and now you're right into them. The the thing is that. It's, it couldn't be so deliberate and conscious. And, and then gradually the idea came to me, well, what about, could it be that the higher you get in a power hierarchy, and the more money and power you have, or not, not money, power, the more you would be sexually uptight. And I, I quickly thought of a pope. And there are all, when I look at, if you look at, for example, sex is about letting go of control. It's literally about getting out of the controlling part of the brain. And going into a more right-brained, more spontaneous place. And I could see in my own life that the transition to out of the lawyer, geeky, academic, intellectual, brain thinker into more playful states like playing an instrument and doing yoga and dancing was sometimes a difficult transition. And I, you know, started to study, well, what is the psychology of power, of being in power? And to make a long story short, it's a lot about staying in control huge control. So in your own life, as a very powerful person who's constantly 24-7 having to play the power game, you can easily interpret the part of yourself that is spontaneous and playful and sexual as an enemy. It's dangerous. If you're, if you're like, even like at a cop, a cop who comes upon a, a little girl who's being murdered and raped, who at a crowd is around who might naturally break into a cry or or vomit or do what a what others who don't have that position of authority are free to do he has to or she rein in her emotions and be in control and that is sort of the opposite of the free form flow of sexuality so that I started to see this idea that the higher you got in a power hierarchy, the more you devoted your life to being in control, 
likely the more you were frightened of sex, that you would see an image of people having sex and go, Ooh! and you would then go, why did I just go, there must be something wrong with it. That's the classic rationalization growth. When you see a black person and react negatively, it's, well, it's probably a criminal. That's it. That's why I reacted. It's, uh, it's a whole process. So the, the interesting thing is that now sexual instilling sexual fear in underlings actually helps you control them, but it also is a natural expression of a person with a power psychology. And um, I got more and more into this, and I started to see that fundamentally the creation of sexual fear creates a hierarchy of the self. If you catch movies till today, you know, they it's it's on movies, the the um, the curtain is drawn on the shower, and somebody is seen, and they're immediately hand over genitals. It's not like... <laughs> the deep instinctual reaction is a part of ourselves. And the more you fear sex, the more you have a hierarchical identity. There's a top dog and a bottom dog in you. I'm going to use a, there's a, a harsh word here, warning. You have a nigger in your genitals. You have a low man on the totem pole. You have a kike. You have a spick. You have somebody who's inferior in yourself. And you have another part of yourself that's judging that. And that part of yourself you're more strongly identified with. So we internalize, the more we have sexual fear, the more we build a hierarchical sense of self. And we then, if we have that sense of relationship with ourself, we naturally are drawn to the similar, similar hierarchy outside. We look for the strong man. We look for the Donald Trumps, or the Popes, or the, the Hitlers, the, the big tough guys. We identify with them. And we look for what they also create, and like he's, you know, he's going to deport 11 million Mexicans, and all of those tough guys always have to have the bottom. It's the hierarchy, because I identify with the top part of me, and I know there's a part of me that's bad and down there, in the social world, I want the same hierarchy, as opposed to the modern John, the 63-year-old John, which has done a lot of work on his sexuality and now pretty much fully embraced it, that I'm a more democratic self. I don't have a low man on my totem pole and a, and a big daddy up in my brain. And I'm more drawn to truly democratic political systems, deep democracy rather than the authoritarian uh, world. And I can see more clearly with this understanding of what is going on, of the role sexuality is playing in authoritarian culture. And it's even like we can, and I ask you to look in, in your own life, because my idea is the more you have been exposed to hierarchy in your family of origin, in your religion, in your job, in your government, 
and we all could roughly measure the amount of hierarchy we've been exposed to, authoritarianism, that will correlate with how we feel about sexuality. And reciprocally, if we could have a discussion and reveal our sexual attitudes and really go deep, and really, which is a challenging and hard thing to do, even to go deep into ourselves and look at our own sexual attitudes, and it's very, very challenging, and almost nobody gets to do it unless they participate in a, in like a weekend or five-day workshop where you can very methodically go deeper and deeper and deeper into that. You'll see that if you can find your sexual attitudes, you could predict how much authoritarianism you've been exposed to through your life. And so that is the political significance of sexuality. It both plays out in our personal lives and it plays out in our um, national and institutional life as well. So uh, Ulrich told me that uh, there are questions uh, and I'm going to uh, quickly draw to a close, but I just want to update you guys. Um, after 30 years of being a sexual activist, I um, I sort of got tired, um, and it, it is, you, you've got to have a certain constitution to put up with cops and government agents and getting death threats and all sorts of stuff from, from trying to have the very talk I've had right to, today with you guys. So, um, five years ago, I, I, I finished the book on sex, and I was fascinated by feeling. Basically, sex is, of course, a feeling, and I wanted to continue my work in the realm of feeling. And uh, just then, the science of happiness, which really started in full gear about 95, um, was popular books were coming onto the market describing the science, and I got really, really interested in the science of happiness, and um, uh, saw a dovetail between what makes people happy and our evolutionary history. I won't go into that. It's sort of a. I, I think I have a, some talent at seeing big patterns, like the pattern between sexual fear and authoritarianism. I saw another pattern between um, what po what uh, positive psychology is reporting makes people the happiest and our evolutionary history. And the nub of the idea is that what makes us happy today, really deeply happy, is what helped our ancestors survive millions of years ago. What? What makes us happy today is what, such as things that aren't traditionally seen as being really promotions of happy, maybe help, but not happy, movement, um, uh, touch, um, not thinking much. This is all being discovered today, mindfulness. But our ancestors didn't think much because they were highly intelligent people, but they had to be present. They had to actually be mindful. And we are just now discovering the significance. So I saw this whole, oh my God, and of course it makes sense, we evolved to like that which would help us to survive through the 20, through the 2 million years that we were had a very um, similar, uh, a constant lifestyle, which was being hunter-gatherer nomads. And by the way, very egalitarian, fiercely egalitarian, according to the... So that's my new project, and I'm taking it public 
like I did with the sex, is called Joy Ship, the journey to primal happiness. And uh, okay, but and maybe another time I could, if you guys are interested, I could talk on that because it's also deeply challenging of the way society is constructed. If what makes us happy is what we are designed for from our paleo world, then we've got a big mismatch. And, and I argue that all of us could jump from this level of happiness. You know, happiness is up and down throughout our day up here if we could adopt a few simple changes in our life.